Well, good morning. As Jason said, my name is Mike Henson. I'm a member of the teaching team here, and I am really excited uh, to keep going with you through our newest series, The Footsteps of Faith. And we're looking at the Old Testament stories. And it's sort of like Act 1 of the Bible, right? The Old Testament. It's got the history, the prophecy, the poetry, all kinds of interesting stories about who God is and what God has done. And over the course of the summer, we want to join together to uncover some of these stories, to take a closer look at them, and to let God speak to us through them, and to challenge us through them. And I want to, before I even start, I want to encourage you to, outside of this series, read the Old Testament. I feel like so often the Old Testament gets short shrift. We don't give it enough attention, enough credit, but it's so important. If only for the sake of accountability, because what if you died tomorrow, and you got to heaven, and you ran into Habakkuk, and he was like, hey, what'd you think of my book? And you didn't read it. And you're, I, uh, where's Timothy? I, you know, because you read that book but you didn't read his. So read the Old Testament. It is a good part of the Bible to read. Now, obviously, we can't look at every single Old Testament story this summer, uh, but we encourage you to read outside. We've, we've been putting some further study questions and ideas on the back of your outline each week. And we also have a number of resources that are available to you. And the first one we've talked about every week is this book here. It's called The Story. And this is something we've had to restock this every single week because it's been so popular. What it is is basically the Bible, but in the form of a novel. So this has been very, very popular. If you want to check that out at Ministry Central. And then we also have these little green sheets here, which is a guide to read through the Bible in 60 days. And you'll hit kind of these major stories that we've been talking about. So these are two resources that are available to you. Please feel free to check these out at Ministry Central after the service. So we're looking at these stories in the Old Testament. And two weeks ago, if you were here, Rick talked about Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, how people tried to build this tower to make a name for themselves. And God came in and scattered all their languages and scattered all the people around the land to accomplish his purposes. And last week, if you were here, Carmen talked about Abraham and how God made this covenant with Abraham whereby his generations that came after him would have a special purpose. And God would bless them so that they could bless the rest of the world. And we talked about how Abraham exchanged his dream for God's dream and how he had to learn to let go. And so today we're moving ahead in the story. We're actually skipping a couple generations. We're going to talk about Joseph, who was Abraham's great-grandson. So Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And then Jacob had Joseph. And that's who we're looking at today. And what's interesting about Joseph's story is that the lesson is at once very simple, but very difficult. It's simple in that it's really not a complex lesson. It's pretty easy to understand, but it's difficult in that it's not an easy lesson to swallow. It's not an easy lesson for us to remember and to believe in our hearts. And so if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be around Genesis chapters 37 is where we're going to start. Joseph's story actually goes all the way to chapter 50. Um, I had asked if I could just sit here and read 13 chapters out loud in a row, but I cannot keep you here till 3. So I, I had to condense it a little bit. So you can follow in your Bible, or if you want, go ahead and get out your gray outline, because we'll have his story in there as well. 
So let me give you a little background on Joseph. Joseph is part of a big family. He has a whole slew of brothers. He has 10 older brothers. He has one younger brother. But the problem in Joseph's family is that it was obvious to everyone that Joseph was the favorite. And that was a big problem for his brothers. And the way that they knew this is this coat that Joseph had been given by his father Jacob. And I'm sure you guys have heard of it. It's the the coat of many colors. So it's this beautiful coat that Jacob only gave to Joseph. And it got me thinking when I was thinking about the story how every guy really has that one coat that they wear, and when they wear it, they feel like they are just on top of the world. Guys, you know what I'm saying? It it can't just be me. I I actually brought mine in to show you what I'm talking about. This is my million-dollar coat for me. Like, so this, this is my overcoat. I wear this in the wintertime over my, over my blazers to work, and it's, I just, I love this coat. It's got this pattern. It's tailored to fit me. I even, I wore this this wintertime. I wore it into work, and I'm a high school teacher, and one of my kids saw me in the hallway. He was like, yo, mister, that coat is dope. You got swag on deck, <laughs> and I didn't understand anything he said. Um, so I, I gave him detention. I came to find out, come to find out later, it was a compliment. Turns out that detention was the last straw for him. He was kicked out of the school. Either way, though, what matters is that he liked my coat. So I picture it would be, for Joseph's family, it's like my dad gives me this coat, and then the rest, like my brothers, they would all get uh, like nylon, ugly, bright black and yellow coats that say, like, Steelers across, or, you know, like, something that no one would want to wear, ever. And so, needless to say, Joseph's brothers really couldn't stand him. And it didn't help that Joseph shared some of these dreams that he had had about his brothers with his brothers. And so one of the dreams, they're carrying these, uh, like, bales of grain, and, and his brother's bales all bowed down to his bale. And he told his brothers this. And then he had another dream where uh, there were the moon and the sun and 11 stars all bowed down to him. If you're the favorite, don't share dreams with people where they bow down to you. That's just kind of, that's etiquette 101. So don't go into work and be like, hey, Frank, I had this dream last night that you bowed down to me. It was awesome. <laughs> so get me some coffee, you know. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kid- but Frank, get me some coffee. So this didn't sit well with his brothers. He tells them about these dreams. He's got the coat. And it leads to his brothers having these discussions about getting rid of Joseph. So how are they going to get rid of Joseph? So here's what they decide. They, well, they, they go through a couple ideas. So the first one is, let's just kill him, and we'll tell our dad that he was eaten by a wild animal. He'll believe that. And then they thought, you know, we probably just can't kill him ourselves. That's a little violent. What if we found a pit somewhere, and we just threw him into the pit, and then he would starve to death, and then technically we didn't kill him. He starved. That's, that's no good either. So then they thought, we'll make some money off of him. And so there was this caravan of traders going on their way to Egypt, and they stopped and they said, hey, we have a slave that you can buy. And they sold Joseph, their brother, into slavery. And so then what they did is they took his multicolored coat, and they dipped it in goat's blood, and they took it back to their dad, and they said, look, we found his coat. An animal must have torn him apart. Family. 
So Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ends up in Egypt. And he's sold to this guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar is a captain. He's a high-ranking soldier under Pharaoh, and he's a big deal. And that's where our story is going to pick up. And so if you want to look in your outline, we're going to start with Genesis 39, verse 2. It says, The Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar. So he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. Now, I want you to underline a phrase in that passage that appears twice. And it's, the Lord was with Joseph. It's in the first and the second sentence. So we see that God is with Joseph, and what is the result? Success. So much success that Potiphar notices this about Joseph. He sees this guy and he says, wait a second. There's something different about him. God is with this guy, and I'm going to put him in charge of my whole operation. And so he gives Joseph the responsibility to lead his entire household and everything he owns. And Joseph becomes Potiphar's administrator, his attendant, his right-hand man. God is with Joseph, and blessing is the result. He's fruitful. He's responsible. He finds favor. He's given a greater place. But the story takes a dramatic turn. Something unexpected happens that messes everything up. And this leads to the first blank in your outline today, which is doing what God asks sometimes leads to persecution. Doing what God asks sometimes leads to persecution. So let's pick up our story again here. We're in 39, picking up at verse 6. Follow along here with me in your outlines. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded, but Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by the cloak, demanding, come, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that she was still holding his cloak and, had, and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you've brought into her house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained." All right, so that's kind of a long story, so let's recap this a little bit. Joseph is hot, 
okay? He's a good-looking guy. He is like the—I wrote Brad Pitt down here, but Brad Pitt's kind of getting up there. Who's like the hot new guy that everybody loves now? He's like the Ryan Reynolds or the—yeah, yeah, okay, good. Yeah, that's a good—he's like the Ryan—or the Rick Jacobs of his day, all right? And Potiphar's wife, she notices this, and she starts making some advances towards Joseph, and he rejects her advances. And he points to both his relationship with Potiphar and his relationship with God. He says, look, this guy's my boss and you're his wife. Why would I do that? And also, more importantly, why would I sin against God like this? So she gets so fed up with this, she corners him when nobody else is around. He chooses to run, but she grabs his cloak— And then she uses it as evidence to persuade other people that he was in the wrong. That he was the violator. He sinned. He came onto me. He tried to force himself onto me. So Potiphar comes home, hears his wife's story, throws Joseph into jail. And it's an interesting side note that he only went to jail. A lot of scholars think that if Potiphar really believed his wife's story, that he would have actually killed Joseph on the spot. But since he knew that the Lord was with Joseph, and he knew the level of his character, and probably knew that his wife was prone to saying these kinds of things, he just threw him into jail so as not to embarrass her. I think it's important for us to look at Joseph's response to sin. He runs. And look at what it says there. It says, he left his cloak in her hand as he ran away from the house. You know, sometimes in our journey as Christians, I think we get to this dangerous place where we start to think that we are incapable of certain sin, that somehow we're above that sin. And so we talk and we say things like, oh, well, I would never fill in the blank. But that's a, that's a dangerous way of thinking because that yields, yields pride, which yields complacency, which eventually yields sin. And so Joseph is a man who's favored by God. He's been put in charge of Potiphar's house. This guy has authority, yet in the face of sin, he literally runs away. In fact, he runs away in total embarrassment because he left his cloak with Potiphar's wife. So imagine you're working out in the field, and then here goes your boss running by naked, and you have no idea why. But it didn't matter because he was running from sin. Because he understood that his handsomeness, his favor with God, none of these things gave him exemption from temptation. And part of doing what God asks of us, part of doing the right thing, is knowing that we can never let our guard down against the enemy. We never let ourselves hover around sin thinking, I couldn't possibly fall into that sin so I can be near it. So Joseph runs, but even in the midst of his running, even in the midst of trying to follow God, he finds himself suffering for doing the right thing. He's trying to obey. He's trying to be honorable. He made the right decision. But what results is unjust suffering, persecution. He's in a situation where he's being seemingly punished for doing what he was supposed to do. And this brings up an interesting dilemma that we find all throughout Scripture. There are countless stories in the Old and the New Testament of people, men and women, who want to follow God, who try to do what they think God is asking them to do, 
and things go sour for them. They're persecuted, and they suffer, and they get blamed or punished or mistreated or imprisoned. And in God's story, it's often true that doing the right things, doing what God asks us to do, leads to difficulty, suffering, and persecution. And this is important for us because I think a lot of times we believe that doing what God asks of us means automatic blessing for us. It's easy for us, we, we, we find ourselves thinking, if I obey God, he'll help me out. It's like me and God, we're, we're buddies, you know, we scratch each other's backs. I do something for him, he does something for me. Or maybe we go the other way with it, where if things really aren't going well at all, then we think that maybe God's mad at me. Maybe he really doesn't love me. You know, maybe this Jesus thing just, it isn't working anymore. And then we go and look for something else. It's an easy trap to fall into, and it isn't biblical. It's, it's the Jesus from the infomercial. It's the Jesus from the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. But it's not the Jesus who is the Christ. And one of the greatest temptations that we can fall into is consumer Christianity. This idea that I give something to God, and that must mean that I get something equal in return. It does work that way, right? Sometimes we obey, and and we feel like we're being blessed, and our, our life is good. You know, we feel like we're close to God, and we do feel like he's blessing us. But sometimes it just isn't the case. And the Bible tells us this over and over again. When Jesus was preaching his Sermon on the Mount, he said you should consider yourself blessed when people mock and persecute you and lie about you because you follow me. When he was teaching his disciples, he warned them that they would be persecuted the same way that he had been. Paul wrote about this too. When Paul wrote a letter to Timothy, he told him about all the suffering and persecution that he had been through for trying to obey God, for changing his ways and following Christ. And he gives Timothy a warning. And it's in your outline at the top of the second page here. He says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Make no mistake, you will suffer in this life. And this is not just an intellectual thing. This is not just because I believe certain things about Jesus. I think this about God. I think this about the Bible. And people don't like me because of what I think. No, this is about active belief. This is a way of life. This is like our operating system. It's everything that we do. And unfortunately, we live in a world where living this way is not popular. Because the godly life is not the most profitable, and certainly not the most self-indulgent. And that's where the persecution comes into play. You know, one of the most famous or well-known chapters of the Bible is, is in Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is often called uh, the, the book of faith or the, uh, the heroes of the faith chapter uh, because it talks about these men and women who have suffered in the name of God. And it lists a lot of people by name. So if you look at it, you'll find Joseph is in there and Abraham is in there. But towards the end of the chapter, it highlights the unnamed men and women. The ones who experienced persecution and will never know who they were. It's not in your outline, but I want to read you these last couple verses from Hebrews. 
Some experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not even worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Countless people who died for the name of God, people who before Christ was even born, they didn't get to see the promised Messiah, but they had faith in him and died because of it. And you know, when we think about persecution, a lot of times I think we, we picture something like what I just read. Persecution means physical violence, being sawn into or drawn and quartered. And in certain parts of the world, that does still happen. But here in America with Western Christianity, I think our persecution is more subtle. It's more under the radar. It tends to be more relational. I remember when I first started teaching, and I had a colleague who decided that she just hated me, just could not stand anything about me. And what was great about it was that our classrooms were right next to each other. So I got to see her pretty much like every 45 minutes when classes changed. Um, so it, there were— there were some moral things, like if, if some people were gossiping, I would maybe try to just sort of find a way to leave, and I knew that that annoyed this person. Um, and, and there were personality things, just different ways of doing things. And if you've ever experienced that, it's really tough in the workplace where you have someone who just doesn't like you, but for no good reason. And I remember talking to my boss about this, kind of feeling sorry for myself, and she, my boss at the time was a, a Christian, and she knew that I was. And she said, you know, Mike, the more you become like Jesus, the more some people are going to hold it against you. And then she said, and you're not the only one. And I was really torn by that because at once I was really appreciative that she was talking to me. And at the other time when she said, you're not the only one, I kind of want to take that little vase on her desk and just like throw it at the wall or something because I felt like she was trivializing what I was feeling. But she was right. The more I thought about this over the years, I realized she was teaching me not only about the nature of the Christian life, which is, yes, you are going to suffer, but she was also telling me, but you're not alone in this. Suffering's not new. It's only new to you. So I want to ask you two questions. And if you want to jot these down, the first one is, have you ever found yourself suffering or being mistreated because you were choosing to obey God. And maybe it's not like a life-threatening thing like what I just read here. Maybe it's just subtle, relational, because you chose to make God or church or reading your Bible a priority. Or you chose to stand up for someone or some group of people who tend to be marginalized. Or maybe you choose to live on a little less so that you can give a little more. Or you choose not to join into the gossip or the negative comments at work. Or maybe you're the kind of person who you like to seek reconciliation when you have a conflict with someone, but that ends up just pushing them away because they don't think that's the way to deal with those things. Everyone who wants to live a godly life will face 
some sort of persecution. Jesus says, expect it. And in one form or another, it will come. And the reason I think it's important for us to identify these ways in which we've suffered for doing the right things is so that it's not that, it's that we can pat ourselves on the back as being martyrs. It's so that we don't fall into the trap of believing that God's punishing me. But it's also so that we can ask ourselves this second question. This is the most important question of the day, which is what is your response to persecution? And I'd encourage you to write that question down. How do I respond to persecution? How do I respond to suffering? When we suffer in our pursuit of God, when we experience difficulty for doing the right thing, the most dangerous thing that we can do is close our hearts to God. For whatever the reason, suffering will often bring us to the place where we can choose to cling to God that much tighter, to run into his arms, or we can choose to close our hearts to him and refuse to see his purpose. How you respond is an important question to ask yourself. Here, Joseph found himself imprisoned in Egypt for obeying God, but he chose to continue to trust in him. And that brings us to the second point in your outline, which is that doing what God asks opens new doors to be used by God. Opens new doors to be used by God. So in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of being imprisoned, Scripture tells us that God was still with Joseph. If you look, we have verses 21 through 23 here, and it says, But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love, and the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. So what happens in the prison? It kind of sounds like the Potiphar story. Joseph is well-liked. He's given charge of everything in the prison. It doesn't matter what the circumstances were surrounding Joseph. God continued to be with him, and Joseph's gifts and abilities were able to be used in some new ways because Joseph left his heart open to God's purpose and God's plan. In fact, over the course of the next several chapters, we see more of these kinds of incidents happening with Joseph. And while in prison, Joseph translates the dreams of a few important people. And two years later, the word about this gets to Pharaoh because Pharaoh's had some weird dreams that have shaken him up. And he needs someone to interpret them. And somebody says, hey, there's this guy, Joseph, he can do that. And so they bring Joseph to Pharaoh. And Joseph says, you know, I can't interpret your dreams, but God can. And so God speaks through Joseph and tells Pharaoh, that there's something big coming to Egypt. There's going to be seven years of abundance, and then there will be seven years of famine. And so as Joseph is interpreting these dreams, he says, since there's going to be a famine, you have to prepare. And based on what you saw in your dream, here's what I think you should do. And he gave Pharaoh a plan to proceed. Pharaoh was so blown away by this. He actually said, is there anyone better to be put in charge of this plan than you, Joseph? Because it was so obvious to Pharaoh that God was with Joseph 
that once again Joseph was put in charge. And so what does Pharaoh do? He puts Joseph in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He gives Joseph his signet ring. He puts colorful robes on Joseph. And at the age of 30, Joseph is able to go out and warn all the people of Egypt, prepare for the famine. This is what's coming. This is what you should do to be ready. So here's a guy who's sold into slavery by his brothers, proves himself worthy to his master, and is put in charge. He's falsely accused of a crime, thrown into prison, proves himself worthy, and is put in charge of a prison. And then in time, he's put in charge of all of Egypt by the Pharaoh. And all throughout the story, what is the one common theme? What's the one phrase that we see throughout these 14 chapters of Scripture? The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Doing what God asks sometimes leads to persecution. And it opens new doors to be used by God. I want to wrap up this morning with what I think is the coolest part of this story. At the very end, Joseph's story comes full circle. Time passes and the famine that was predicted through Pharaoh's dreams hits. And it hits the land in full force. And a lot of people are out of food. Except the Egyptians. Because they were prepared. And so people come from all over to Egypt to buy food. And among those people who showed up, among the hungry, was Joseph's family. These very brothers who sold him into slavery. And you can read the details of this. This is around Genesis 42, but I'm going to just kind of give you the, the Reader's Digest version of what happens. So his brothers, Joseph's brothers, come to Egypt to purchase grain. They have no idea who Joseph is, and they actually bow down to him requesting this grain. And they get their grain, and they head home. And before they head home, Joseph says, hey, if you need to come back, bring your whole family. I'd like to meet all of your brothers. And sure enough, they have to come back. So they come back for more grain. And now they have the whole family. And Joseph invites them to his house for dinner. And he gives them a meal, and he gives them some other supplies to take home. And he, he starts asking them some questions. Tell me about your father. Is he in good health? You know, tell me about your own lives. But he can't take it. And he breaks down. And he tells them who he is. And needless to say, his brothers are stunned. And even more than being stunned, they're terrified. Because his brothers are convinced that he's going to kill them. But this was Joseph's response, which is in your outline. He said, please come closer. So they came closer and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. So it was God who sent me here, not you. He is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. Not only did God open the doors for Joseph to have a high level of responsibility and authority, but he opened the doors for Joseph to come back into contact with his brothers. And in these moments, Joseph had a choice. He could have said, take them away, kill them. By the way, I'm your brother, deal with it. He could have paid them back for all of the persecution that they had put on him. But instead, he reconciles. And as I was reading this story this week, I was blown away by his response to the persecution that he suffered. When Joseph finally meets his brothers again, he essentially tells them, 
Don't worry about it. God was with me. You hear the trust in his voice. It says, yeah, you sold me into slavery, but don't be upset with yourselves. It was God who ultimately got me here. He sent me here for you so I could help you down the road. He's the one who's been with me the entire time. The Lord was with Joseph. You know, in one of the last conversations that Jesus had with his disciples, he encouraged them to go out into the world and make more disciples. This is in Matthew 28, and he says, I want you to go out and make disciples and help other people follow me the same way that you followed me. Baptize them and teach them all the things that I've been teaching you. And know when you go out that I will be with you always. I will be with you always. You know, maybe if you're honest with yourself this morning, you are in a place where you're feeling persecuted, where you're feeling like, for whatever reason, you are suffering. And maybe that's in the workplace with some of your friends, wherever. Maybe you're just hurting right now and you're not sure why. I think God is asking us an important question today, which is how will you respond to the suffering that you will inevitably experience? Will you close your heart to God's purposes? Or will you cling to him that much tighter, knowing that he will ultimately use you for his glory? And while you ponder that question, I want to give you two pieces of encouragement. And the first one is that God is with you. Jesus is right there. And even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it feels like the world is crashing around you and you are being persecuted, God is with you. And secondly, at some point, like Joseph, you will arrive at a place where you can look back on the suffering you experienced and see God's hand in it. And like Joseph, you'll be able to say, you know, it was God who brought me to this place. My prayer is that you'll soften your heart so that you can say, wow, yeah, God, God was there. He was there the entire time through all of that. He was always with me. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you are always with us. In our brightest days, our darkest nights, God, you are there. You said, I will be with you always. God, we want to be men and women who respond like Joseph did. We want to choose to do the right thing to follow you, even knowing that suffering may be the result. And we want to be men and women who, in the midst of suffering, we run to you and not away from you. May we live in such a way that we recognize that you are always with us, that you are always by our side. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to encourage you to get out your white response card from your program guide. And while the worship team leads us in this next song, I'd ask you to take a moment to reflect. Whatever God is laying on your heart, would you record it? If you need prayer, if you feel like you're in a time of suffering right now, or if you feel like you need to be prayed with or prayed for right now, 
then you can head out of these doors and go down the hall to the green room, and our prayer partners are there. They're waiting to pray with you. Take this time to talk to God during this next song.